The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. Look, if you would, at Exodus chapter 20, continuing our study in Exodus, and for the fourth week, looking at the fourth commandment. And in the interest of time, I'm just going to read the fourth commandment, beginning at verse 8 of Exodus 20. There it says, Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or daughter, nor your manservant or maidservant, nor your animals, nor the alien within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them. But he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Now we've already seen the nature of the commandment. We've broken it apart. The commandment, I hope you all got an outline uh, available at the back. If you don't have one now, don't take the time to get it. But at the end of the service, certainly get one. But the commandment says that we should remember the Sabbath. That means it's a, uh, it starts in our memories and our minds. We should remember it specifically by setting it apart as holy. It should be holy ground, sacred unto the Lord. We should do all of our work in six days, laboring for those six days. It's a commandment to work, but it's also a commandment to cease from work. The word Sabbath literally means a ceasing, a stopping, resting. So we should do no work on the Sabbath, on the seventh day. The command is for everyone we've seen. Uh, in other words, if you lived in an Israelite home, whether you were under the covenant or not, you would be resting on that day. The commandment was for everyone. And the command was patterned after God's original creation. One thing I haven't discussed is the importance of this concerning a literal six-day creation. I think it's important for you to see the connection. Do you see it? How would this command make any sense if it worked like this? For in six indeterminate periods of time, God created the heavens and the earth and rested on the seventh indeterminate period of time. So you also should work for six days and rest on the seventh. It doesn't really work, does it? It really kind of falls apart. And so I think that God set up a cycle or a pattern of the week and specifically of the day. There was evening and there was morning. And six days were for labor. And labor and work, contrary to the concerns of some, uh, actually existed before the fall. And it's a good thing to work. But it's also a good thing to cease from work, isn't it? And that's what the seventh day is all about. We saw that the first table of the law, namely the first four commandments, focus on our relationship with God. We saw in the first commandment the object of worship is the only true God. We saw in the second commandment the mode of worship is not with idols or with physical representations. We saw in the third commandment the manner of worship, a reverence for the holy name of God. And then in the fourth commandment, what is set for us is the time of worship. One day in seven set apart as unique and special. A day holy unto the Lord, a day for worship. We've seen that man has two sinful extreme responses to it. One is license. Absolutely no concern whatsoever for the Lord's day. No concern for the Sabbath. Uh, Sabbath breaking. No concern for public worship. 
no concern for it at all. We've also seen legalism on the part of the, the scribes and Pharisees in which the minutiae of the law were broken down and to the point where they were the Sabbath police standing over everyone and pointing the finger at the mat carrier in John 5, forgetting to see the great work that Jesus had done in raising him up. But then we see another sinful response, one perhaps a little more common in the church, one of grudging compliance. What a burden, and we kind of submit to it, but we don't really want to. And we've seen that that is something that we want to fight against. We looked also at Christ's ministry, and we, I think, at least I feel the commitment to say that this was not a ministry of removal, but of renewal, of restoration. Jesus was not removing the Sabbath regulation, but was restoring it from the excesses of his day. We saw also last time we looked at the Sabbath verses in the New Testament. We saw that some of the verses in the Pauline epistles, which seem perhaps to be lending a sense in which the Sabbath is no longer uh, important or significant for Christian people, that it doesn't say that at all. The Galatians passage in which he seems exasperated for them that they're observing special days, I think would be linked more to the Jewish ceremonial calendar than to the Sabbath. Paul's statement on freedom in Romans 14 is very significant, and I think it does impact us in that we are not to be having a judgmental spirit on debatable issues. We're not to be standing over and saying, well, this is what we do on the Sabbath, why don't you? So that we are in a judging position. We realize that each Christian is a servant of his master, and to his own master he stands or falls. And so we can't be in a position of judging. We don't want to be the modern Pharisees. We also learn from Romans 14, however, that on this matter of the Lord's day, whatever, that, whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. So we need to be acting in faith on the issue of the Lord's, uh, Lord's day. And so we have to be uh, coming to a convicted response to this, a sense from Scripture on what we are to do. And it says uh, we have to be, it says, fully convinced in our own minds. Paul's clearest statement on this issue is in Colossians 2. We saw that we should let no one judge us by what we do on a Sabbath day because the Sabbath day and the other regulations are shadows of the things to come, but the reality is found in Christ. So these uh, are the statements that Paul makes. Now, I don't find in any of these a removal of the Lord's day or the Sabbath regulation, not at all. But rather, I do see further understanding and clarification on it. We also talked about the Sabbath rest in Hebrews 4, and I think that this is seen to be eschatological or end-time rest in Christ. Through faith in Christ, you're going to come into the Lord's rest. But this doesn't mean we shouldn't have one day in seven set apart to think ahead about that day and think about the day when we will be fully done and finished from all of our work just as the Lord has finished from his. So we talked about that. We also mentioned last time briefly the perpetuity and change of the Sabbath. Perpetuity means the lasting nature of it, the fact that it continues on across into the New Covenant. This is the title of a sermon by Jonathan Edwards. But he said there's also a significant change in that we don't worship on the seventh day, but we have moved over to the first day, which we don't call the Sabbath as much as we call it the Lord's Day. And we call it that because on the Lord's Day, the first day of the week, Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. And I think there's a very significant and weighty theological principle here, and that is that with Jesus' physical resurrection from the dead, we have the first stuff, the first material of the new heavens and the new earth, his resurrection body. 
And I would hope you wouldn't object to the word stuff or material because in the baptism today that Scott said, do you believe in the bodily resurrection of Jesus? Of course we do. And yet there's somehow something different. And so his is the stuff of the new creation. And so I think it's, it's significant that it happened on the first day of the week commemorating when the Lord began the first creation. And so we have a new creation. And we Christians worship on the first day. We're not Seventh-day Adventists. But we, we believe in the first day worship, the Lord's day. And we saw some verses concerning it. Now significant, I think, is the Hebrews 10, 24 and 25 passage in which it says, let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. That's a very clear command. Now, when it comes to church discipline on the issue of the fourth uh, commandment, I think this one, our church, is comfortable in settling in. If there's any able-bodied person who willfully neglects the Lord's Day and chooses not to worship with us, we consider them to have broken the covenant. And so are the deacons and the family ministry plan and other uh, efforts. We are saying you need to come and worship with us. We are concerned about your soul if you don't. Again, we've said again and again, able-bodied people who are out and about doing other things and yet can't seem to find the time to come to worship. We consider this to be a sin. Uh, and we consider it to be the kind of sin that we would desire to see people transformed and repented from. On what basis? Well, certainly on the basis of Hebrews 10, 24 and 25. But don't you see the fourth commandment behind it? And that this is the day the Lord has set apart for us to get together and to worship. Okay, so we've seen all of these things. What I want to do tonight is finish up the outline by looking at the reasoning that I've done from the issue of the sanctifying work of the Spirit. Now this is an idea that came to me as I was praying through the Ten Commandments. Thinking about what is left for us concerning obeying this. What, what should we do? I think we would all acknowledge uh, that we should come together one day in seven for corporate worship. I think we can see that clearly and that if we don't, that there's a sin involved that we must repent from, that this is serious. We acknowledge that. But anything more beyond that, now that gets kind of questionable. People wonder about it and they ask questions. So I began thinking about it and I started thinking about the whole of the Ten Commandments and the role of the law in our lives. What function does the law play for us anymore? It says in Romans that we who are Christians are no longer under the law. Well, what does that mean? It means that the law is not going to send us to hell. Isn't that wonderful news? It could do it, you know. The law could send you to hell. One sin is all it took for Adam and Eve to be evicted from the garden. God is no less holy now than he was then. But this is the immense value of the blood of Jesus Christ. We're no longer under the law as a condemning power. So we shouldn't come to the question of the Lord's Day that way either. You know, what must I do or else I'll be condemned? That's not the question a Christian would ask. Well, then we say, then what, what is the function of the law now for a Christian? I think we can sense that we're not out from under the law and that we don't need to do anything with the Ten Commandments or the two great commandments. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. I don't need to do that. You know, I'm, I'm not under the law. Well, this is the full-time business of a Christian, that we would love God with all of our hearts and we would love our neighbors ourselves. As a matter of fact, it was for this that we were saved, so that we could do it. It says in Ezekiel, I will take out your heart of stone, and I will give you a heart of flesh, and I will compel you to walk in my laws and in my ways. A New Testament statement of it is in Romans 8. 
Romans 8 verse 1 says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the spirit of life has set you free from the law of sin and death. So please don't tell me you're not under the law. You're just not under that law. You're under a new law, though. It's called the law of the spirit of life. And it set you free from the law of sin and death. For what that law was powerless to do, in that it was weakened by the sinful nature, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful nature to be a sin offering for us. Jesus, by his death, his physical death on the cross, has paid the penalty for all our law-breaking and all our lawlessness. Well, why, though? And so we condemn sinful man. Look at verse 4. In order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the sinful nature, but according to the Spirit. Now, I think it's both that we are not under the condemning penalty of the law anymore. In other words, verse 4 saying that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us. Fully met through the blood of Jesus having been shed for us, God's justice is satisfied. But is that all it's saying here? Oh, I don't think so. It's so that we might live the law. Do you see that? We who no longer live by the flesh, we live by the Spirit. What are we going to live? The law of God. The holy law of God. And why not the Ten Commandments as a starting place? Why not be brought back to the Ten Commandments and have the Holy Spirit say within us, this is what I'm doing in you. This is the transformation that I'm working in you. Well, if that's the case, I want it all. I don't want just nine of the ten. I want all ten of the ten. I want God to do his full work in me in all of the ten areas. And that includes the fourth commandment. So there's still work to be done in me. Now, you, if you look at the Ten Commandments, can you honestly say that you have arrived in five of the ten, let's say? I must say, I've got five of the ten, but the Spirit's still working on the other five. Really? Is the Lord God your only God? That's the first commandment. Is he your only God, or do you worship other gods with small g's? Do you have any idols? Remember that greed is idolatry. Do you have anything that you want materially that has become an idol in your life? Or are you fully there in that area? How about honoring the name of the Lord? Maybe you don't use the name of Jesus or the name of God as a curse word, but don't you think it goes deeper than that? Do you honor the name of God the way you should? And do you keep the Sabbath fully the way God intends? Or is there not some work yet to be done in that area too? How about honoring your parents? Remember that Jesus talked about money to be given to aged parents and, and the adults that were holding it back were breaking the fifth commandment. Do you honor your parents, your father and mother? Well, what about the issue of murder? Well, that one I'm fine on. Oh, really? Just read the, read the Sermon on the Mount and ask if you're fine. You have heard that it was said, you shall not murder. But I say that anyone's angry with his brother is in danger of the fire of hell. Oh, there's still some work on the sixth commandment to be done in my heart. Oh, what about you shall not commit adultery? Well, again, the Lord's command concerning lust makes it clear that there's still work to be done there. How about theft? You've never stolen anything? There's no issue of theft in there? Well, you say, maybe on that one I'm doing all right. I haven't stolen anything in a while. Well, 
Just ask the Lord to show you in your heart how you, perhaps you do the taxes, your, your taxes or how you carry yourself with uh, things that belong to your company or, or other issues like that. What about bearing false witness against your neighbor? Have you ever opened your mouth and slandered or gossiped in some way? Is that not a matter of tearing down or bearing false witness against your neighbor? And how about coveting? This is the very one that Paul said, I could never, I could, and the more I thought about it, the more I coveted. Is there not still a sanctifying work to be done in each of these ten areas? And so I would want to say, Lord, I don't keep the Sabbath the way I should. I'm not finished yet. So therefore I pray that you would sanctify me. <clears throat> and so I've given you ten statements there, and you can read through them. Look at the fourth. God, may I so desire to focus on you and to love you and to cherish you that I'm delighted to set apart one day in seven as completely yours. Could that not be the prayer of your heart? That you would really want to do that? And that the competing things that come in, that they would be taken away from your heart so that you delight to do this very thing? The final verse that I want to look at with you is in Isaiah 58. It's printed there in your outline, Isaiah 58, 13 and 14. How then shall we keep the Christian Sabbath? It says, if you keep your feet from breaking the Sabbath and from doing as you please on my holy day, if you call the Sabbath a delight and the Lord's holy day honorable, and if you honor it by not going your own way and by not doing as you please or speaking idle words, then you will find your joy in the Lord, and I will cause you to ride on the heights of the land and to feast on the inheritance of your father Jacob. The mouth of the Lord has spoken. Boy, there's so much in there, and we could spend a long time on it. But I just want to focus on the transformation that's involved in this verse. Look at verse 13. If you keep your feet from breaking the Sabbath and from doing as you please on my holy day. Now, what does that mean, from doing as you please? It means that you pleased to do something that God didn't want you to do. It was your pleasure to do something that God didn't want you to do. Now, how are you going to get healed from that? How are you going to get healed from that pleasure to a different pleasure that's also in these verse, verses? It says, and if you call the Sabbath a delight. Oh, so we have competing pleasures. Is that what's going on here? The, the feet breaking the Sabbath and doing as you please pleasure. And then there's the pleasure of the Lord's holy day, a day set apart for him, for worship, for focus on him. We have indeed competing pleasures, right? How are you going to get healed so that the one that used to be too big diminishes and dwindles, shrivels, and the other one becomes a feast for you? And that's in fact what it says. I will cause you to feast on the inheritance of your father Jacob. How do we do that? Well, I would begin with prayer. I'd begin with humble seeking of the face of the Lord like a spiritual beggar and say, Lord, I don't keep the Lord's holy day honorable the way I should. I don't. I, I, don't, I don't choose you above other things. I have a kind of a box-checking mentality toward the Lord's day. I went to church, check, and that's it. And there's really nothing else concerning the Lord's day for me. And I think instead what you want to say is, what's, what's going on in here? What's going on in my heart so that I would rather do lawful pleasures that are not focused on Christ? Believe me, I'm not talking about sin. But I'm talking about other things, just other things. I would rather do them than have time with my family 
in a family altar time, or time in good, solid Christian fellowship talking about the sermon, or another sermon, or reading a Christian book, or singing around a piano some hymns, or getting together with my, with my uh, disciples or disciplers, and we're going to do a, a ministry project, or, or any of a, a number of a thousand different things that we could do following these lines, works of piety and works of mercy and works of necessity, these things that we're going to do, a whole world of things to feast on. Why would I rather do the other than this? When I was a single man, I'll never forget this. CJ and I were talking about this at lunch today. Uh, we had worship, and then we had a fellowship meal every week, small church, about 50, 60 people. And I was a single guy. I was an engineer working five days a week like anybody else, working eight to five. And when I got done, when we got done, it would be 2 o'clock in the afternoon. And by then, I already had my bag dinner with me. And I would go out to a pretty place, some woods somewhere or near a lake. I had a, a favorite place I liked to go. And I would spend the rest of the daylight hours just reading the Bible or reading a Christian book or singing alone. Nobody could hear me, and that was a really good thing. But I enjoyed whatever would feed my soul. The Puritans called it the market day of the soul. I was feeding my soul on the Lord. I've never had better Sundays since then. Now, I'm not in any way saying that I don't enjoy my Sundays now, um, but it's interesting. It's different now with young children, and we're growing and learning together. But I got this great booklet from Christie called A Day of Delight by Pam Forster, making Sunday the best day of the week. And she begins this way, just a series of statements. Where's my other sock? Quit playing, we're going to be late. Let me in the bathroom. Where's my first sock? My shirt's missing a button. Let me in the bathroom. Leave her alone. Where's my Bible? That's one of my favorites. That's my sock. No, it isn't. It's mine. No, it isn't. I'm hungry. Where's my shoes? Come on, we're leaving now. I have to go to the bathroom. Hurry up. Uh-oh. I like that one, too. <laughs> oh, no. That's even better. Hurry up. We have to stop and get gas. <laughs> Can we drive a little slower? Uh, don't you think we should have stopped that stop sign back there? Hurry and get out of the car. Where's your other shoe? Does that sound familiar? No, no, no. Well, I'm glad, Herbert, it doesn't for you. But I'll tell you this. You know, I think, and one of the points she makes here is you have to prepare to have a Lord's Day. And all week long, Monday they do such and such, Tuesday they do this, Wednesday they get their church clothes ready. It takes them three days to find the socks, the shoes, the hair ribbons, the dresses, all that stuff. They get it all in one place. And they cook meals throughout the week so that they can eat with minimal effort on Sundays. They make plans. They prepare. And they get themselves ready for a Lord's Day observance. Now, if this is an area of growth for you, I understand. It's an area of growth for me. And I don't think anybody's willing to stand up on this command or any of the others and say, I have arrived. Follow me as I follow Christ. Go ahead and say that. And I don't mind a pattern, but understand this, all of us are on a journey. And so I desire that we be better Sabbath keepers than we are without getting infected with Pharisaic legalism. On cases of conscience, what are we going to do? Can you watch an NFL football game on Sunday and still keep the fourth commandment of, the God, of God? Can you um, go to a restaurant for Mother's Day? Ooh, ouch. Can you go, you know, to, to whatever restaurant you had already made reservations for next Sunday? Can you go there? And, you know, these are, these are cases of conscience. What I want to ask you to do is this. Ask yourself a question. Why would I rather do that than the other things that we've talked about?
Diagnose yourself. Ask, am I keeping the Lord's day a delight? Or is there something I delight in more? Wouldn't you like to get to the point where the psalmist says in Psalm 73:25, Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. I want to get to the point where I can, with Isaiah and Isaiah 58, call the Sabbath a delight every week. And I want you to as well, because I think it's a matter of, of blessing and growth. It says that God will cause us to rise on the heights of the land, and you'll feast on the inheritance of Jacob. And what is the inheritance of Jacob? It's none other than God himself. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build his kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.